University-based researchers studying education tend to be evaluated mainly through the narrow lens of their influence on disciplinary scholarship. Like their peers elsewhere in the academy, they're judged by the number of books and articles they've published, the frequency with which those publications are cited, and perhaps their success in securing outside funding. My guest today thinks that should change, and he's doing something about it. Each year since 2010, he's published a set of rankings that seeks to capture not only researchers' scholarly impact, but also the extent to which they're shaping the public conversation about school reform. What are the opportunities and risks in this exercise, and what can we learn from it? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Rick Hess, director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm always happy to say, an executive editor of Education Next. You can find a series of blog posts explaining, reporting, and analyzing his 2019 Edu Scholar Public Influence Rankings on the journal's website at educationnext.org. Rick, welcome back to the Ednext Podcast. Hey, thanks, Marty. Now, you've been generating and publishing these rankings since 2010. Calculating them is no small undertaking, and my understanding is that this is something you've done on your own without external funding from the start. So what led you to take this on? Uh, it's a great question. Yeah, so we've done it's just a couple of my RAs. It's a kind of passion project we do uh, late in each December. And yeah, it's something that's never been funded. We just kind of do it because uh, we do it. Um, started doing it because, as some of the listeners may know, I was once a professor in North Virginia and wound up, for a variety of reasons, moving to a think tank. And one of the things that struck me is both in my time uh, at UVA and in my years after that, was how little um, encouragement, support, incentive there was for researchers who are doing good work that was relevant uh, to policy and practice to necessarily cross over from the academy. Um, some academics do it, some academics are good at it, but it wasn't always the case that there was obvious reward or encouragement. Uh, and I was bored to death uh, at one of these congressional study visits uh, to a couple of new design schools outside of Indianapolis and I was trying to amuse myself, and it was football season, and I started wondering, is there some way uh, to let us think and talk about other dimensions of what researchers do that matters, like the way we talk about football players uh, or uh, you know, folks who invest stock funds, mutual fund managers? Um, and what I started noodling on the back of a sheet of paper was, what are some things that research assistants might be able to simply and easily and transparently collect that would maybe offer some insight on this with all the caveats and acknowledgements that it is a remarkably imperfect and a small measure of part of what researchers are supposed to do. You just mentioned football, and in your writing about the rankings, you've made the analogy to the world of baseball, where there's this concept of a, a five-tool player, one who can run, field, throw, hit, and hit for power. What are the tools that you're trying to capture as you think about this broader lens on what it is that academics can and should be doing? It's a great question. I mean, the first one has got to be, got to be a good disciplinary scholar. So as many folks have observed over the last decade, the rankings are hugely biased towards people who have actually established themselves um, as respected and authoritative scholars. Because, you know, the fact that you can tweet or weigh in on a blog doesn't, you're, there's no uniquely scholarly contribution if you're not actually bringing scholarly accomplishment and knowledge. Uh, so one is there's, you got to be a disciplinary scholar. Second is there are people who are good scholars who write and speak terribly. They're indecipherable. They bathe everything in jargon. 
So part of this is not only are you a knowledgeable and accomplished scholar, but can you communicate it in a way that crosses over? A third is there are folks who are good collaborators. Uh, you, you know, some of the work that some academics we respect do is them sitting down crunching a data set or them writing philosophical treatise, treatises. And there's other academics who are great at marshalling colleagues, at building bridges. Um, and look, a, a fourth is the ability to pithily and, and take the time and energy to pithily and, and effectively communicate uh, via op-eds, um, via you know, interviews and quotes. This, the, these are not things that should make you a good scholar, but for scholars who are going to have an impact beyond kind of the, the academic journals, these are skills that can help make them effective at it. So let's turn then to the metrics you use to try and capture these tools, or I suppose the degree to which scholars are making use of them. And this has evolved somewhat over time, but you've always, as you mentioned, started with traditional indicators of academic influence, citation counts and the number of books. A somewhat recent addition that I find interesting is how often a scholar's work shows up on publicly available syllabi, mm -hmm. presumably a measure of their long-term influence in the academy. Uh, but the other measures are less traditional. So their highest ranked book on Amazon, I once heard a joke at Harvard that the uh, way to make yourself unpopular among your peers is to write a best-selling book. So this is working in exactly the opposite <laughs> of uh, that direction. Uh, mentions in newspapers, the education press, on the web, and in the congressional record. And for scholars on Twitter, their cred score. So this is a, a much broader set of indicators than we traditionally think of when evaluating an academic's work doesn't align in a one-to-one -one way with the set of tools that you were just referring to, but presumably it's an attempt to, to capture the degree to which uh, they possess those tools. Um, it's also far from comprehensive. What is missing from the indicators? What's left out? What would you wish you had a metric to capture that, that isn't there yet? Yeah, so I mean, let's, let's be honest. This is an incredibly uh, imperfect uh, attempt to try to gauge some things and get folks talking about it. Um, and, and as I mentioned each year, it's kind of like the way we use quarterback ratings. Um, I don't know anybody who thinks that quarterback ratings or human rights scorecards are a one-for-one -one measure of how quarterbacks or countries are doing, but I think they convey some information and they give us a way to talk about and argue about something that's important. Uh, what you know, One thing we can't measure, which I would love to measure, is some of these other critical roles that scholars play. So there's folks who sit on uh, you know, the National Assessment Governing Board, uh, your colleague, uh, Andrew. We were talking about this just earlier in the week. Like Andrew I mean, Ho at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Yes, exactly. Uh, there's folks who sit um, on state boards of education. I think you do a little bit of this. Uh, there are folks who you know, serve in a variety of these roles that are obviously hugely important uh, in terms of actually contributing scholarly expertise and knowledge to real decisions. Would love to find a way to kind of capture that. Um, I would love to find a way to separate uh, self-promotional and snarky tweets from things which are actually knowledgeable and learned. I would love to find a way to capture people who are out speaking to practitioner groups. So I think what, what we wind up with is what um, a couple of RAs with a week of time can measure in a systematic way from existing sources that doesn't raise questions of bias or selectivity. But I think what that means we miss is so much of the soft tissue of influence. And of course, the not captured at all is 
uh, academics influence who they're teaching and mentoring on the uh, on campus. Right? Yeah, and that's you know, or even if you're teaching at all, um, every year it's raised that you know some of these folks, not just at summer teaching in institutions, they have to teach, you know, three courses a semester, four, you know, I I instead of places like Harvard and Stanford where maybe you're teaching one in many cases. But some folks uh, really don't have any; they're bought out of their teaching load, and this is all they do. And other folks are sitting on lots of student dissertation committees. Um, and are teaching large courses where they're conveying lots of information. Uh, yeah, and, and in some ways you can think about, w one could try to argue that teaching is a different um, piece of activity from this influence, but I think you're right that it's really not, that over the long term, frequently, um, maybe the best measure of an academic's influence is all of the folks who they have you know, taught and, uh, taught and uh, encouraged. So who gets ranked? You note in your essay that there are some 20,000 scholars in the academy working primarily on education issues, but you rank only 200. How do you decide who makes the list? That's a good question, uh, and that's grown over time. Originally, when I first cooked this up in Indiana, I think I came up with a list of 60 names and we ran it, uh, and I got a uh, angry email the next morning from a mutual friend of ours. We added 30 more names, <laughs> and uh, over, um, and th th it was, it's not a Harvard faculty member, the, the, the angry, it's just for anybody who's listening. Um, the uh, over time, so it's grown to 200. Uh, what we do is we take about the top, we take the top 150 from the prior year. Uh, they automatically qualify, um, so long as they are minimally active. They have to do 10 points in what we call the active categories. So we don't just want emeritus professors coasting forever on uh, you know Google Scholar points. Um, so that usually gives us about 125, 130 folks, uh, and then we have a selection committee of about 29 folks. Uh, we've tried to be uh, try to get a group that is disciplinarily, methodologically, kind of philosophically diverse um, out of the automatic qualifiers. And what we do is we ask them to nominate um, whoever they wish, whoever they think ought to be in it. And then we do, and then they vote. And the name, the top 75 or so names they nominate fill out the list. And that's how we wind up with our 200. And going back to a point you made just a moment ago, the fact that all of the metrics you rely upon are publicly available to anyone that they can be calculated in less than a half an hour or so, I guess, for a given scholar lets anyone add themselves to the list, not publicly, but at least to see where they stand. That's right. That's part of the point. And we've, I've heard a you know, increasing over the years from folks who are trying to make the case to uh, a, a university leadership that they'd be a good, that, that giving them some university resources to try to do an outreach program, uh, trying to make the case to a dean that somebody ought to be a good hire that the ability to use these metrics and score this person, whether or not they happen to be on the list that's selected here, um, gives them a way to just um, offer some evidence that they are actually impactful in ways that, you know, a lot of people in education seem to think matter to some degree. And that leads into my next question, which is, how have the rankings been received within the academy? And has the reaction surprised you? I was struck by the fact that when this year's rankings came out this week, all of a sudden there were a bunch of actually press releases coming out from uh, some universities, or at least tweets, I'm not sure about formal press yeah. releases, bragging about their faculty members' accomplishments. So uh, they're not being ignored. Yeah, you know, and I think, um, I think it helps that I, we try really hard uh, at, at every stage to admit, to, to be clear that this is an incredibly limited and imperfect um, exercise. It's just an effort to offer some attention for something that I think is generally in most universities been undervalued. Um, 
you know, relatively because of that, relatively few people have pushed back, you know, aggressively. There's always some people who, you know, point out, Rick, this is incredibly flawed. And all I can say is, yeah, you know, you're right. Uh, but, you know, unlike, say, college rankings where there's a, you know, a sense of that this is the authoritative ranking, we've tried very hard to steer away from that, which I think has minimized, you know, the, the vocal criticism. And on the other side, yeah, over time, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard that this has been used repeatedly for folks um, when they've made, uh, when being weighed by the National Academy of Education. This has shown up in profiles and analyses. Um, I know deans who've told me that they use this to identify younger scholars, especially when they're looking in areas that they might not be as familiar with, who are some folks they ought to make sure they've got their eye on. Um, I know a lot of folks who've used this, say, for tenure packages or uh, making the case that they ought to be funded for grants from foundations that might not be familiar with them, that, hey, I'm, you know, not only do I do good work, but people pay attention to my work. Um, you know, so these are all cases, I think, of this playing some role of helping to put more of a spotlight on things that I think deserve, you know, some spotlight. So let's turn to this year's rankings. Uh, one place to start might be the top five, which were in order Carol Dweck and Linda Darling-Hammond of Stanford, my Harvard colleague Howard Gardner, Gloria Ladson-Billings of the University of Wisconsin, and Stanford's Joe Bowler. What strikes you about that list? You know, the <laughs> what I think it does is capture how clearly the winds have shifted uh, in education, in the education kind of space. Um, for the first eight or nine years we did this, the top two were always uh, Diane Ravitch and Linda Darley-Hammond. Um, Linda's still up there. Diane's still high, but she's number 10 this year. Carol Dweck, who I don't think it appeared on it in prior years, just she's never been nominated by the committee, right, which is interesting given how influential she's been, but of the 75 names each year, they got not, she wasn't one of them. She got nominated, she's at the top. And I think what that shows is not that like Diane is suddenly less influential, but that what's getting written about, what newspapers are covering, what the education media is focusing on, has suddenly shifted so powerfully towards mindset, towards social emotional learning, that you, know, you see Carol Dweck, you see Joe Bowler from Stanford in that top five, um, where folks who are much more creatures of the debates about accountability, about school choice, Diane Ravitch, Rick Hanischek, um, are still, you know, are, it's not like they're any less significant as scholarly figures today than they were a year ago, but that shift of the spotlight of the conversation has moved from them elevating others and meaning that we're just seeing less of these people in the popular media and such. So they're getting fewer calls from the New York Times, fewer calls from Education Week and the like, and that's showing up in uh, reduction in their metric here. One of the things I see is something you mentioned before, a clear bias toward more senior scholars. In fact, it's, it's very difficult for junior scholars to score well. Uh, this is primarily due to the traditional indicators like citation counts, which accumulate only over time, but also presumably because it is in part a scholar's academic influence that brings him or her to the attention of journalists, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so to some extent, these may be more compliments than, than substitutes. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's, y you know, I mean, one of the things that I have always worried, wondered about and worried about uh, is, look, I don't want, you know, w one of the risks with something like this is that you wind up encouraging a bunch of academics to wind up writing more tweets or snarking more, doing things that, because they will get attention. And that, that's not the purposes. The purpose of this is to 
make sure that scholars who are doing good, comprehensible, understandable work actually get some encouragement when they're crossing over. And so part of that is trying to make sure that there's a bias towards people who've demonstrated scholarly accomplishment over a period of time. And uh, yeah, and I think that shows up, which also means that when you see, you know, younger scholars, you know, more recent uh, professors. Robert Kelchin this year. Robert Kelchin, uh, yourself, uh, you know, in the top 40, that, you know, I think that's, um, you know, I think, you know, people ought to always look and why exactly is somebody popping up. But I think in the case of Robert Kelchin, it's because he is actually doing timely, relevant, interesting work uh, in higher education at a time when people are hungry for that. And higher education is certainly where the action is from a policy perspective, at least at the federal level right now. There's also on the list clearly a concentration of scholars from a select number of institutions. Uh, being from Harvard, it pains me to say that Stanford had three of the top five, five of the top 20, but Harvard had 22 of the 200 scholars overall. Stanford had 18. UCLA had 13. What do you make of the fact that so many names are drawn from such a small number of institutions? Yeah, you know, I think basically there's probably two ways to read this, and I have no earthly idea which one is right. <laughs> um, one is that this whole thing is massively skewed towards people who sit at institutions that get a lot of attention, that hog the spotlight, and so these are names that are familiar, and these are who get called by the newspapers uh, and whose books therefore sell. The other is that when you are successful in academe, that there are places that you aspire towards and that can come calling, and that it is – um, accomplished, successful uh, researchers, especially ones who are good both in the disciplines and in a broader stage, who wind up migrating to Harvard and Stanford. Um, Presumably it could be a little bit of both. And it could be a little bit. And, and I have no earthly idea how you unpack that. But, you know, if there is some, y y y you know, so some doctoral student out there is looking for an interesting question about academic influence, <laughs> maybe somebody smarter than me can shed some insight on this. And I should also note that there were 57 institutions represented overall, 12 in the top 20. So it's clearly possible to gain prominence if you're not at an Ivy League institution. Yeah, that's exactly right. What else did you notice or find surprising about this year's list? Anything? Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard. You know, it's funny. It's, it's hard to say. One is that I guess the biggest thing is it's a version of what we already touched on that there's an interesting rotation, like in who moves into the top 20, who's moving out. But that rotation is not so much about senior scholars moving out and young, a younger generation moving in. There's a little bit of that. But it's much more about what we talked about. You, you picture a big spotlight on the stage, what reporters at the New York Times are calling to ask about, what Chronicle of Higher Ed is writing about. And in 2017, they're calling one set of characters with one set of expertise. And as the natural zeitgeist moves, you feel the whole spotlight kind of sliding over and the, everybody's starting to talk to a different set of characters. And, y you know, it's interesting, I think, some of the ways in which as the zeitgeist changes and, you know, what we are interested in changes, even the people we consider experts change along with that. Yeah, that's really interesting. If that's the case, then the list is measuring as much the public mood as it is measuring public influence. Uh-huh. Uh, and I guess you would think the nature of real influence would be to shape the public mood rather than just be captured by it, right? Uh, so, so I think Which to some degree that interpretation calls into question the, the exercise. Uh, exercise. Or uh, that's right. Uh, uh, but but you know, all of these things get so complicated and interesting, <laughs> right? Or is it the fact that like Carol Dweck and Angela Duckworth have been so successful 
that for a while they were understated, but now this thing is showing like how successfully they have, and like, again, trying to like untangle these threads just requires somebody I think much smarter than me. Now, of course, to the extent that any ranking system gains credibility and influence, there's the risk of gaming. That is, scholars engaging in behavior that would enhance their standing regardless of its public value. Should we con be concerned about this? And you know, how would one go about gaming the system? Yeah, we should always be concerned about it. Uh, and it's, um, you, what's nice, we've tried to pick measures that part, you know, part of the problem here is that the, they're, the fact that they're limited and reasonably crude, but that but 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 in this case, I think that also kind of works for us. I mean, it's hard to game being read into the congressional record. Um, it's hard to game uh, being mentioned by like major media outlets. Uh, it's true you can issue more press releases about your work, but up to a point, I'm actually good with that. If folks are doing work that actually matters, one of the things I believe is that they should be making more efforts to communicate it in ways that people in school systems or in legislatures are learning about it and benefiting. So up to a point, I'm actually okay if there's more communication about it. Um, you know, the one that I worry most about is cred score because, you know, I, the last thing I want to do is have a lot of people tweeting because they say, oh, Rick has his score will reward me for it. But that's only, you know, it's 10 out of 200 points, which is 5%. The difference, and, and it's really, it's not even that much because the span for mostly if you look at the interquartile, it's probably about two and a half to seven. So it's, it's probably about two to three percent of your score. Um, and there is some value. I mean, on the one hand, I would like to have, pe and there's people who aren't necessarily like eager millennial tweeters, like our colleague Paul Peterson, who actually still has a very respectable cred because people are interested in what he's doing in social media. Um, so what we've tried to do, a Amazon best-selling books. It's hard to make your book be a bestseller on Amazon, so. I mean, it's gameable, I suppose, but it's really difficult. And frankly, if you're doing things that make people buy your book, that probably is, from my perspective, I like to have people doing this work who write books that people actually read and buy. Um, but yeah, and, and I mean, the big concern is that ultimately you wind up with universities having lots of sleazy PR hacks, spending a lot of time trying to like drown uh, folks at Education Week or Chronicle of Higher Ed in order to pump up their scholar scores. Um, but I think, generally speaking, we're far enough from that at most institutions that I don't feel like we're in the we're, in, we're not at the yellow light stage stage yet. So I think you've made a good case for the value of the exercise overall and how you've carried it out. You've been sort of frank about its uh, limitations and imperfections. Before we close, let me play devil's advocate a little bit and sort of uh, push against the the exercise. And what I'm wondering about is. You know, what if the greatest value of academic research is its long-run influence on ideas, which occurs by gradually generating consensus on big questions within the academy in a way that eventually shapes public thinking, but not via tweets about one's latest study? Is there a danger of distracting scholars and distorting our evaluation of them by downplaying what matters most? Yes. Um, no, I mean, that is a fabulous, uh, fabulous articulation of the concern. And yeah, it, it, there is. Um, so I guess what I would say is probably two things. One, that what I worry about is that the scholars who understand uh, research as a communal activity and are engaged in that with uh, kind of the fidelity, 
um, are always there, and that there have always been ranks of, I think, less serious scholars who use their perk in the academy uh, to express their personal opinions. And part of what, the way I try to design this with the heavy emphasis on body of academic work is that one of the things I'd like is if folks who are serious scholars, part of that communal exercise, um, if they made it a point to try to bring that same seriousness of purpose and talking about what we do and don't know and talking about where we are in the body of knowledge uh, to the public square. Um, again, there is nothing in the way I do the metrics that distinguishes that, but by trying to put a heavy thumb on the scale of scholarly accomplishment, trying to think about that a bit. Uh, the second is that while that is all true, I think it is truer in some disciplines than others. I think that makes all the sense in the world if we are talking about uh, the biosciences. Um, I think it's less true when we're talking about schools of public policy or public health or education, where there's a very explicit translation function. Um, and so that's, so, so I would be much less comfortable uh, doing this kind of exercise for some of the more traditional disciplines in the arts and sciences. And I'm more comfortable doing it in education, even allowing that I absolutely, when I do this, sit there and wonder if I am pushing us in the wrong direction because of the concern you flagged. My guest today has been Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and Executive Editor at Education Next. You can find his 2019 EduScholar Public Influence Rankings at educationnext.org. Rick, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.